Morning, everyone. Great to see you here uh, this morning. Nice to see everyone so close to the front. Um, well, we here uh, today. We're doing the last of a three-part series uh, on what we call the Messianic Psalms. They're psalms that point towards Jesus, the Messiah. Uh, we looked at two weeks ago. We did Psalm two. Then we did Psalm 22 and today we are doing Psalm 110. So it's the last part of the series. Um, You can breathe a sigh of relief because you get a break from me uh, next week and we have a special treat. Next week we have Wu Jin uh, preaching to us. It will also be a psalm but it's a standalone psalm, Psalm 19. So I'm really looking forward uh, to hearing from Wu Jin next week. But for today, we start with story time, or part of a story. It comes from this book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which uh, I know many of you have read by C.S. Lewis. Uh, If you don't know the story, just a bit of brief background, things have been building up towards a showdown between the Wicked Witch uh, and Aslan the Lion, who rules Narnia. But instead of Aslan destroying the witch, things take a shocking turn. Aslan willingly lets himself be killed by the witch. So so that Edmund, uh, one of the children who are um, some of the heroes in the story, could be saved. Edmund has betrayed Aslan and his human and animal subjects. But Aslan has made an agreement with a witch to sacrifice himself so that Edmund could live. But then as Aslan lay on the stone table just before the witch kills him, she said to him, And now who has won? Fool! Did you think that by all this you could save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever, you have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In this knowledge, despair and die. So things look pretty bleak. The, the witch then goes ahead and kills Aslan. But then miraculously, amazingly, Aslan comes back to life. He gathers his forces and marches up to the witch's palace. The witch's palace is filled with statues of living creatures that he has turned to stone. And we pick up the story here, just two brief excerpts from the story of Aslan and his forces storming the witch's palace. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All those stone animals and people too. It's, it's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan's doing something. He was indeed. He had bounded up to the stone lion and breathed on him. Then without waiting a moment, he whisked around, almost as if he had been a cat chasing its tail, and breathed also on the stone dwarf which was standing a few feet from the lion with his back turned to it. And then it goes on. 
Aslan proceeds to turn these stone animals to life. And then finally, the final showdown uh, as Aslan confronts the witch. Off my back, children, shouted Aslan, and they both tumbled off. Then with a roar that shook all Narnia from the western lamppost to the shores of the eastern sea, the great beast flung himself upon the white witch. Lucy saw her face lifted towards him for one second with an expression of terror and amazement. Then lion and witch had rolled over together but with a witch underneath and at that moment all warlike creatures whom Aslan had led from the witch's house rushed madly on the enemy lions, dwarfs and their battle axes, dogs with teeth, the giant with his club, unicorns with their horns, centaurs with swords and hoofs. And Peter's tired army cheered and the newcomers roared and the enemy squealed and gibbered till the wood re-echoed with the din of that onset. And that was the end of the witch and the evil army. Well, C.S. Lewis, for for, uh, many of you will know, of course, that this book is meant as an allegory of the story of Jesus. Aslan's death at the hands of the witch was a picture of Jesus' death on the cross. And coming back to life is obviously a picture of Jesus' resurrection. Of course, not all the details line up exactly, but the witch represents Satan. And that final battle is a picture from the book of Revelation where Satan and all the forces of evil are defeated. And Psalm 110 tells the same story. It talks about God's king who will sit at his right hand defeating his enemies and bringing judgment on the kings of the earth. And like the Narnia stories in the book of Revelation, this psalm isn't shy about God's king crushing the heads of his enemies. Because the defeat of these human rulers is inseparable from the defeat of the spiritual powers of darkness as well. And together they are responsible for the misery and enslavement of God's people. Like the creatures turned into stone by the witch, they are only saved when the king defeats his enemies. But we'll see that there's also another layer to Psalm 110. The king who rules over the rulers of the earth and defeats his enemies is also a priest. A priest who serves the people forever. And then he's also a judge, defeating evil and putting things right. And it's as he does all these things, three things together, that he brings salvation and freedom for his subjects. That's where we're going. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you for this psalm. That's a difficult psalm in many ways for us to come to grips with. But we thank you how it points towards the work of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that through it you would encourage us, challenge us and give us hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, the psalm is divided into three parts. Verses 1 to 2 talks about the king ruling over his enemies. Verses 3 and 4, the king puts robes as a priest on to serve his people forever. And then the last part, verses 5 to 7, he puts, takes, uh, puts on another hat, the hat of a judge. And he judges the kings of the earth. So firstly, a first point, the king will rule over his enemies. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, A psalm of David... I meant to have that on the slide because this is important. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. So I should have included it on the slide, but notice in my reading, I started off with that phrase, a psalm of David. The first words of the psalm in verse 1. Because that's how it's meant to be in the original Hebrew. A psalm of David is part of the psalm proper, not just a heading that we have in our English Bibles. That's actually misleading. Because those first words of psalm of David are crucial to what follows. David calls this king at God's right hand, my Lord. You see in verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, that first Lord, which in our Bibles is in capital letters, is the word for God, Yahweh. It's the special personal name for God. The second Lord means master, someone who's a higher rank. Higher rank. But who could be a higher rank than King David? If you know your Bible history, you will know that David was the greatest of all of Israel's kings. Meaning, there was no one higher than King David. But but David here clearly identifies this other king as being higher than himself. He would sit at God's right hand, meaning that he would somehow share God's power. And he would rule over his enemies. More than that, he wouldn't just rule over them. He would humiliate them. He'd sit on his throne and put his feet on their heads. There's no greater picture of humiliation and total defeat than that. Now, actually, this sort of language that we have in Psalm 110 isn't new to to the ancient world. Uh, It was pretty standard stuff when a king was crowned to bless them by saying things like, may you rule over your enemies and put your feet on their heads, etc. And Psalm 110 was probably actually used uh, in Israelite coronation ceremonies when a new king was crowned. But the fact that David calls this king his lord is a very clear sign that he's talking about a very different kind of king. One who wasn't just a normal human king. 
And so there is a hint already that making his enemies his footstool wasn't just a normal, normal king talk of the ancient world, that something bigger is going on here. And this talk of putting his feet on his enemies' heads after a hard day of ruling isn't just a normal sort of blessing given to a human king. It's not just empty boasting like uh, a royal version of let's make America great again. It reads like a prophecy, this, this whole psalm. It's not just David saying this. Notice that it's the Lord says this, God says this. This is, these are prophetic words. This is God speaking with the same language as the prophets. It's not just that we hope that this king will defeat his enemies. This is what God declares will happen. Well, the next two verses then change the focus from the king's enemies to his own people. The enemies are rather unwillingly playing foot cushion to the king, but the people, God's people, are freely offering themselves to their king. And we discover in this next section that this king is also a priest. And that's our second point. He will serve as priest forever, verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, the king's people will volunteer to fight for the king in his battle against his enemies. Verse 3, your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Actually, a better translation is your people will offer themselves on the day of battle. That's literally what verse, what the beginning of the verse says. And they will offer themselves in holy splendour, as it says. That's the idea of wearing clothes that make them holy or clean. God's people will be clean. This language of offering and holy is the language of the tabernacle or the temple. In the tabernacle, there were offerings brought to the priest. So see see the priestly language and and the, the reference to the tabernacle going on here. They make offerings to the priest and here the people become the offering. And they are made clean, they are made acceptable, an acceptable offering to God. Now this picture makes sense with what what follows in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the king also serves as a priest. Instead of the normal animal offerings or sacrifices, the people offer themselves and they're made clean, holy by this priest. Now, just as he is no ordinary king, he's also no ordinary priest. Because as it says here, he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. If you know your, um, your Old Testament history again, you will know that the normal priests all come from the tribe of Levi, right? They were the Levitical priests. 
they had to belong to this particular tribe of Levi uh, or they couldn't be priests. And they served in the temple or the tabernacle and they made sacrifices regularly so the people could be forgiven and made right with God. That was, that was their function. But this king is different. This king who becomes priest is different. He isn't from the order of Levi. Instead, he's from the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a very strange character in the Old Testament. He only actually appears once in one brief passage in Genesis 14. And he's introduced as a king as well, like, like this king in Psalm 110, the king of Salem. In Genesis 14, he blesses Abram, who becomes Abraham, after he defeats a bunch of kings and rescues his nephew Lot. This guy, Melchizedek, appears out of nowhere, nowhere blesses Abraham. Abraham gives it, him a tenth of all that he has. That's it. That's all you hear from him. But then the book of Hebrews picks up on Melchizedek. In Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Melchizedek, unlike the normal Levitical priests, was without beginning of days or end of life. Resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And like him, Psalm 110 says that this king will be a priest forever as well. Like Melchizedek, he is both priest and king. Now, in the Old Testament, that's something that's unheard of. You probably know that priests couldn't be kings and kings couldn't be priests. And when a king tried to be both, they got into trouble. You may know the story of King Saul. He got into trouble and things began to unwind with for him when he made an unlawful offering that Samuel, the priest, was meant to do, but Saul couldn't wait, so he made the offering instead. He tried to be priest and king, and that got him into trouble. But here, we have this strange mix of a king putting on priestly robes and serving in the tabernacle doesn't quite seem to fit. It doesn't, certainly doesn't fit the normal role of a king or the normal role of a priest until we understand who this king is. And we do that most clearly by hearing the words of Jesus. We get strong hints from Psalm 110 itself that the king is meant to be more than just a human king. As we saw earlier, the Lord said to my Lord, King David is, is addressing him as someone higher than himself. But Jesus gives us one of the clearest explanations of an Old Testament passage that we have in the New Testament. Now, whenever we, you, you uh, Bible scholars will know that whenever we interpret a passage from the Old Testament, an important rule is that the um, we go to the New Testament to see if it throws any light on it. And we always use the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, right? 
Well, that applies here. And so we go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, 41 says this. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So familiar passage, we know that Jesus here is quoting Psalm 110 and he's making it very clear that in Psalm 110 is talking about the Messiah, the Son of God, and that's why David calls him Lord. In other words, Jesus is talking about himself. Pharisees didn't understand that. But Jesus is saying that he is the one who would rule as king. He is the one who would defeat his enemies and he would be our priest forever. And it's when we come to the whole reason why Jesus came to earth that we see these three pictures that we find in Psalm 110 fit together. This, these pictures of Jesus going into battle as king and putting on the robe of a priest and then putting on the hat of a judge. All these three pictures coming together. And friends, they come together at the cross. Of course, Jesus didn't go to the cross swishing a sword. In fact, the very opposite, when Peter is arrested in the garden, Peter pulls out a sword to cut off the ear of the servant. Jesus says, put that sword away. Jesus will have no part of that. He will have no part of violence. That wasn't how Jesus would win the battle. Jesus won the battle by becoming our priest. Not in the normal way of sacrificing animals year after year, but by sacrificing his own body. Not many, many times, just once. Once for all. And what that did was to defeat sin. He paid for you our sin. Because that is the greatest enemy. Because it's sin that is behind every ruler waving their fist at God. And it's the thing that keeps us enslaved to Satan and running away from God. And friends, that's why Psalm 110 is much more than this slightly strange poem about a king. It's a celebration of victory that we share in. It's the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus dying for us. And the gospel is like a diamond. It's many-sided, many-faceted. On the one side it shows God's love, then related to that is God's grace. Another side is to show God's justice. But here in Psalm 110 the emphasis is on God's victory. 
the victory won by Jesus, his king, victory over sin. That's often hard for us to see, isn't it? As we're enmeshed in the mud and dirt of the world. We live in a world which does everything it can to push God out of the picture. And we live in this body of weakness that carries the scars of sin. Just by illustration, let me give you a snapshot of what my day might look like. It might start with me dragging myself out of bed, going for a run, come home half dead, asking myself why on earth I put myself through that kind of pain. Then after brekkie, I, I read my Bible and pray, and I'm telling you, it's a battle. It's a battle to stay awake. It's a battle to concentrate and to believe that these words apply to me. And then it's a battle to pray and to make it meaningful. Then I sit at my desk and the battle continues to fight against distraction where even the power bill sitting up on the notice board suddenly takes on, uh, is suddenly more compelling than thinking about this week's sermon. And then other battles raise their heads through the day. The battle against being annoyed by the boys leaving a mess in the kitchen. The battle against boredom and laziness as I avoid doing those admin jobs that I need to get done. And so it goes on. Now I tell this story not just to have a whinge but because I think that actually we can all relate to this experience in one way or another. Because life in general, and that includes our Christian life, is a struggle. It doesn't often feel victorious. Yes, God gives us those kind of mountaintop moments, but between those moments, there's kind of boring, banal, everyday life, which is a struggle. We can easily feel dragged down by our sense of failure. But what Psalm 110 tells us is that the king has won the war. The enemies have been defeated. Sin is still there and, and we battle away with it every, against it every day. But Jesus, our priest, has killed the power that sin has over us. And friends, our future in the new creation is where we will stand with our king made clean, with clean, holy garments. That's the reality that the muck and the mess of this world makes it hard to see. But friends, that is the reality. Well then in our final section, verses 5 to 7, the psalm comes back to the theme of the king conquering. But there's a different emphasis here. Instead of just crushing his enemies, the emphasis is on the king as judge. Judge over the kings and judge over the nations. Huh? Yeah, that's our third point, judge over the nations. I, I did have another... Oh, never mind. 
Sorry, I must missed out a slide. I'll just read it. So verse 5, if you have your Bibles, you can follow. So verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. It's heavy stuff, isn't it? I wonder if you've got a Bible verse at home hanging on the wall or, you know, maybe one of those nice tapestries with, with an um, encouraging, inspiring Bible verse, something like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or uh, something encouraging like that with a lovely scene on the background. I wonder if anyone has one like this. Uh, if you can't read it, that, that has uh, verses 5 to 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. I wonder if you have that on your wall, reminding yourself of that each morning. I suspect not. Makes us cringe a bit, doesn't it? We tend to celebrate the idea of... We don't tend to celebrate the idea of God crushing the heads of people and heaping up the dead, do we? We don't have a lot of appetite for warfare and bloodshed. And actually, mostly that's a pretty healthy thing. There'd be something wrong with us if we gleefully wait for the next news report coming out of Gaza talking about how many civilians have been killed. And what we tend to do is spiritualise warfare language in the Bible to emphasise God's victory over sin rather than physical enemies. And that's legitimate and reasonable, like we said back in, in verse 2. That is the emphasis of the Bible. But when it comes to passages like this and other parts of the Bible like the book of Revelation, we see the inescapable reality that God fights a war against physical as well as spiritual enemies. The two go together. Sin may be our greatest enemy, along with Satan, but the kings of the earth, the rulers, the powers and the institutions are real agents who do real evil. And the message of Psalm 110 is that they will be judged. They will be judged. And the Bible isn't shy or embarrassed about declaring that God will deal with that evil. It will be judged, it will be defeated. Now, will that be in a literal, physical war? I don't think we need to hold to that. The Bible is full of metaphors, picture language, and I think Psalm 110 may well be just that. But one way or another, real people who carry out real evil and violence and oppression will be judged by the King of Kings. I want to finish off with a couple of reasons why Jesus' victory as judge is good news for us. We saw earlier that Jesus being our priest 
means that the enemy within, sin, has been dealt with and that the big picture is that we share in that victory with Jesus. We will wear white clothes. We will be holy on that day when Jesus appears. And Jesus' judge also means that the enemy on the outside in the world has been dealt with as well. The physical enemies. And that gives us confidence that God's outpost here on earth, that is us, that is the church, we're not just a struggling, irrelevant oddity that the world often sees, but God's kingdom is what will prevail. God's kingdom is the final reality that will matter in the end. Not the brutality played out by nations bent on revenge and payback. Not the cynicism of governments that panders to the self-interest and greed of its people. Not the cruelty of offshore detention and disregard for human rights of the marginalised and forgotten. These things are real and they're there, but they're not their ultimate reality. They won't have the last word. Instead, Jesus, the judge, has won victory for the ways of the kingdom. Where peace will reign and forgiveness will blot out revenge and hatred. Where grace will swallow up bitterness and beauty. Beauty will overwhelm the ugliness of cruelty and indifference. And where the weak and the powerless will be at the centre and not the margins. And our energy will be spent on their protection and on maintaining their dignity. And the one who makes all this happen will be Jesus, our King, Priest and Judge. Amen. Sorry, guys, didn't get, give you much warning. <laughs> <laughs>